Holy Spirit, would you come and speak your words of life into us? Would you come and do the transformative work that only you can do? We open our hands, we open our hearts, we open our ears, we open our eyes to everything that you want to show us this morning. May not one of my words be amiss, but may they be on the mark and speak into your people's hearts. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. We're a little thin. I suspect we have some folks traveling for Christmas time. The first question I, I have on my brain this morning is one you hear on road trips, and it's, are we there yet? Are we there yet? We almost are there. The journey from Advent that leads to Christmas, we're almost there. Tomorrow night is our Christmas Eve service. We've been preparing to receive the Christ child, all that Christmas truly is. And an Advent heart makes for a true, good, and right Christmas. Not all the gifts, not all the stuff, not all the hoopla. Linus got it right. You remember Linus and Charlie Brown's The Merry Christmas Charlie Brown? He gave a speech in that. Asked him about the true meaning of Christmas, and he retells the birth narrative of Jesus. And he does that, you know, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown, at the end. Okay? It's not about the commercialism that Charlie Brown has been wrestling with and, and bemoaning throughout the cartoon. It's all about Jesus. Evidently, Linus knows a thing or two. So today, as I said, is the fourth and final Sunday of Advent. And if you track the Advent themes via the uh, Advent candles and the wreath back here, you might know that this week focuses on peace. Peace. Peace is symbolized in the angel candle, reminding us of the Annunciation, right, where Gabriel comes to Mary, telling her that she will bear forth a son and he shall be the Messiah. She shall be the God-bearer, the Theotokos. Uh, also reminding us of the announcement of Jesus' birth to the shepherds. Remember, glory to God in the highest uh, and on earth peace on whom his uh, goodwill towards men on whom his favor rests. So many folks have notions of peace on earth, that phrase. Uh, the one thing that most people know about the birth of Jesus might be they associate with, oh yeah, peace on earth, that, that whole thing. So peace on earth is kind of shorthand for Christmas and all that Jesus business that Christians talk about during the season. Now, In our liturgy, we often say we look for his coming in glory. We say that every week, we look for his coming in glory. And Advent is about his second coming. We prepare by looking back at the birth of Jesus his first coming. But this glory was true of Jesus' birth too. Okay, the glory and jubilation in the heavenlies, right? The heavenly host rejoicing. When he was born, there was such proclamation and celebration. And it might have been silent night here on earth, another poor child born in the world. But in the heavenlies, well, the heavenly hosts were rejoicing. So to the human eye on this side of the Jordan, this side of the veil, there was nothing special about Jesus' birth. Okay? And as we edge very close to Christmas, we are looking for, we are straining our eyes for something else. And we are looking for what I call his coming in humility. We are looking for his coming in humility. Now, the Old Testament passage in Micah takes us there. And that's where we're going to be, Micah 5, uh, verses 2 through 5a, the first part of uh, verse 5. It's going to take us all the way back to the cradle of David's line. It shows us where David's lineage leads us as it sort of lumbers and lurches forward on its divine trajectory. As God unexpectedly told Samuel to anoint David to rescue his people from Saul's failures, God now prophesies about David's successor, the one, capital O, who will rescue Israel and ultimately the world after the failure of David's own descendants. Now the prophetic setting here is there's been an invasion by the Assyrians 
And this chapter begins with Israel's defeat. You can look back in verse 1 if you're curious about that. But it concludes this chapter with their victory. Messiah shall be the one who leads them through it. But again, this is about more than just one event in Israel's history. This is prophecy after all. It's that now and not yet, right? You know, Micah is speaking to something in the near future, yes, but he's also speaking in the far future. And I think that's what we're going to explore right now is how he's speaking out here about the Messiah. Verse 2 speaks of the one who shall rule Israel, and then some, I would say. And this ruler shall come from small, humble beginnings, okay? Small, humble beginnings. Let me give you some examples and, and pictures of this. Take David, whose line from which this person comes, the Messiah. He was the youngest of Jesse's sons, okay? He was literally the overlooked one. Wasn't even brought before Samuel, the great prophet kingmaker, when all of Jesse's sons were lined up. He was out in the field shepherding the flocks. They didn't even think to bring him to Samuel to be lined up to see who the new king would be. He was the runt. He was small. But from Bethlehem, often called the city of who? What's Bethlehem? City of David. But from Bethlehem, the city of David, shall come the Messiah. And that place, Bethlehem, pretty insignificant when you put it in the shadow of mighty, mighty Jerusalem. It's Quote, small among the clans of Judah, the scriptures tell us here. Okay? Backwatered little town. Small, humble, not so impressive. Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah. Let's just say Bethlehem wasn't really impressive in the grand scheme of things. And yet from the city of David, from Bethlehem, shall come the Messiah. Isaiah presented a similar truth by comparing the Messiah to a branch or a little shoot. It's really small springing up from the stump of a burnt-out tree. How's that for unlikely? That's Isaiah 11. The kings born in proud Jerusalem, well, they had all failed. The Messiah born in lowly Bethlehem, he, is, he will be the one who will triumph. Who can unite these clans of Judah? Well, guess what? The clans didn't always play nice with each other. Uh, it wasn't always the case. Rarely was there peace among them. And then there was that little problem of a divided kingdom with the Jews split into two pieces. Who is the person who can do this? <laughs> who can rule? Well, we're going to look for something small, something unspectacular, something insignificant and overlooked as far as the world is concerned. Okay? That's the phrase I want you to get. And what of the lineage and heritage of this humble person? We'll look at the latter half of verse 2 here. Out of you will come for me one who will rule over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So this is one who will be devoted to the Lord's will and purposes, a ruler who submits, key word, to the Lord's purposes, a ruler who will finally and fully follow God's ways. And his lineage will be tied to David's. He'll have royal blood in his veins, in other words. But his origins, it's said, are more ancient and older. These are primordial. These are eternal. These are everlasting. This is the, the preeminence of Jesus spoken of in the Scriptures. Now notice here, the call here is for a ruler, but not for a king. The language is clear. The prophets often avoided entitling the coming Messiah as a king. That's kind of interesting, I find it. I don't know if this is like guilt by association. The kings had failed so horribly at points that they didn't want to associate that way. I, I don't know, but I think it's significant because it underscores the fact that the Messiah will serve the Lord's plans. Again, it's a picture of submission. The kingly title is something reserved for Jesus after he has successfully completed his earthly mission. Isn't that fascinating? After his ascension, after his return to glory to the right hand of God the Father on earth, he came to serve in humility and lowliness to accomplish what no human king could do, 
what no king of Israel ever did, which was to be fully submitted to the will and the purposes of God. Case in point, the main messianic image in this passage, look at verse 4. What do you see? Shepherd. I saw somebody mouth that. Yes, the Messiah is the good shepherd. Verse 4 is a big clue. And here's how it's a clue, uh, besides giving us an inkling there. A shepherd's a common laborer. Uh, Just like a carpenter, there's nothing particularly special about being a shepherd. No one aspired to shepherdhood, uh, as if you could in that day and age, but you wouldn't have. Despite the comfort and positive uh, associations we might have with that image, it's not a big deal. It's ordinary. It's humble. It's small. It's insignificant. Again, this is a common labor. Now, Jesus will later appropriate that very image to describe himself as a picture of a just ruler who cares for his subjects in John 10. And it's used in other places in the New Testament, like Hebrews 13, uh, 1 Peter 5. Later on in 4, it says he will, uh, verse 4, it says he will stand and shepherd his flock with God's strength and the glory of his name. Stand, meaning he's going to rise up and lead with strength. His reign will actually endure. It's going to hold fast. It won't be a flash in the pan or a few years reign until he's deposed by the next guy who's vying for power. This is different than the endless succession of judges or Old Testament rulers and all their failures and all their foibles. And he will provide for his people. It says, shepherd his flock. What does this mean? What does a good shepherd do? Well, he leads the sheep to water and food. Okay, So he knows where the green pastures are out in the desert. He knows where to find water out in the desert. He will care for them. He will provide for them. Okay, He will lead them with his staff. That's the shepherd's crook we often think of. And he will defend them from thieves and wolves with his rod. A rod is a weapon. It looks like a big cudgel. It's like a weighted stick. Remember this from Psalm 23? His rod and the, his staff, they comfort me. Okay, So he is going to shepherd the flock and care for the, care for the flock. He will defend them as well. He's going to seek out the lost sheep, Okay, those who wandered from the fold. And they will live securely as his renowned as his glory and his goodness spreads throughout the land. Now, it makes sense that this Old Testament reading today ends with verse 5a. And he shall be our what? Peace. The word there, shalom. You heard that word before? Probably so. Shalom, or peace, speaks of safety, well-being, wholeness. It carries with it a sense of satisfaction and utter contentment in, in God's presence. God is our portion. That's one phrase from the Old Testament that fits that sense of shalom. We are complete and whole because of his care and his reign. Uh, Julian of Norwich puts it this way, all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well, right? We know this kind of peace in fleeting moments, right? Don't you know this kind of peace where, where you get these glimpses of goodness, these glimpses of shalom? Do you know what I'm talking about here? You know what I mean? I see some head nods. Okay, I'm going to take that that we can forge forward. (laughs) Now, I love that. And he shall be their peace. What a line. Now, we speak peace to each other every Sunday, don't we? We bank on that reality, okay? That Jesus gave us his peace so much so that we then bless each other with that very gift. But what does this peace mean? That's my next question. But what does that mean? Peace is something that everyone in their right mind wants. I mean, look around. Who doesn't want shalom? Who doesn't want peace on earth? Elvis Costello has this great tune, 
And I don't know if this is the title of it or the refrain. What's so crazy about peace, love, and understanding? What's so crazy about that? Think of all the music written in the last 50 or 60 years about the desire for peace. Give peace a chance. That was the rallying cry of the 60s and 70s. Lennon's Imagine, a lot of Bob Dylan's songs, Ginsburg's Howl. Everybody wants peace. Maybe a little justice too. And there are moments of it. There are moments. Let me give you an example. Um, the hymn Silent Night was actually composed back in the early 1800s. It speaks to, and you know the song, it speaks really tenderly of the birth of Jesus, the quiet manger scene, very pastoral. But re- what really popularized this song was its history in World War I. How about this? In the famous Christmas truce of 1914, era of trench warfare, which was brutal, the area between the lines, the trenches, were lined with barbed wire ravaged by bombs and mustard gas. It was savage warfare. And trench living conditions were pretty horrendous too. There was disease, famine, starvation, etc. Somehow, both sides negotiated a Christmas truce in 1914. They all met on no man's land, that ravaged area between the trenches. They played football. By that, I mean soccer. Okay, in no man's land. They shared food. They exchanged stories. And get this, the troops all sang Silent Night simultaneously in French, English, and German because it was the one carol that the soldiers on both sides knew. How about that? I mean, and if you see pictures of this event, they are very striking, very, very poignant. I say that because what must it have been like to go back to business as usual the next day? Can you imagine that? Kill or be killed for peace to fade so quickly and to revert back to the ways of chaos and death. Poignant to say the least. We know this peace in fleeting moments, don't we? We do. In a world at war, anyone in their right mind wants peace on earth. But I think it's more accurate to say that we want peace, but we want it on our own terms. Now, why do I say that? Because that sounds awful snarky, doesn't it? Let's revisit those famous lines spoken to the shepherds in Luke 2. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Uh, hold on, where's the plain old peace on earth with a period at the end? Why peace to those on whom his favor rests? Hold on a minute. I thought Jesus was supposed to bring peace to the whole world. Free peace for everybody. Well, let's take a look at what Jesus actually says about peace. Jesus makes a point of talking about peace to his disciples twice, right before he's crucified in John 14 and 16. John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, I don't give as the world gives. And then John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Also, beyond just those two mentions before he's crucified, right after the resurrection, upon meeting the disciples collectively in John 20, Jesus' first salutation, his first blessing to his disciples is what? It's peace. (laughs) peace be with you, okay? And after he said this, he shows them his hands and his side, and yes, it's really me. The disciples are overjoyed when they saw the Lord, and again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you, and then he breathes on them. Jesus made a point of giving the disciples peace three times in some very critical moments. 
before he's crucified and after the resurrection, those two bookends, John 14, 16, and 20. Folks, that's key. Because that's more than just a greeting. Peace be with you. We can say, oh, that's just a greeting. No, this is a promise. This is not just a greeting. This is a promise. I am that peace. So peace is the gift everybody wants, but ultimately, excuse me, on our own terms, with or without Jesus, we want peace. But the issue is, Peace comes from knowing Jesus, right? Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace. Isaiah calls it the Messiah, the Prince of Peace in Isaiah 9. So peace is like a spiritual law of gravity. If you want peace, let Jesus make his home in you, okay? Make room for him in the end of your heart. Did Jesus bring peace on earth as the world understands it? Did he? Look around. What do you see? Did Jesus bring peace on earth as the world understands it? No. No, I do not give as the world gives. In the world, you will have tribulation. Now, what he did do is he brought peace into our hearts so that we could carry it out into the world to share with others, bringing his light into dark places. The peace of Christ accompanies us on this mission. It's a divine provision as much as it is a divine promise. Worth anticipating, worth waiting for, worth hoping for, worth longing for? Well, I'll answer that for you because I'm going to go ahead and say yes, 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 yes. Ad nauseum, yes. Now there will be a day in his second coming when final justice comes and when peace is fully restored, not only internally in our hearts, but externally in the circumstances that surround us. The new creation will fully manifest the peace of Jesus' reign the lion lying down with the lamb. That's a picture of that. And he shall be our peace, as Micah says. We're going to close here. Uh, and I just have some real simple questions for you. And I would encourage you to write them down and reflect on them the next couple days. Okay? These are very simple. And they all get at the same thing. Is Christ your peace? Very simple. Is Christ your peace? And let me follow it up with this. Uh, what does that mean to you? What does that mean for you? Let me give you an, sort of an action point, a, a place to go with that. How can you actively remember this? In other words, look back at this year, okay? And where has Jesus been your peace this year? Where has Jesus been your peace this year? What are those moments when the peace of Christ, which seemed maybe completely absurd given your circumstances, found you? That peace that passes understanding, right? So that's worthy of Advent reflection and contemplation. What does the peace of Christ mean to and for you? And where have you seen it this year? Okay, reflect on that. Uh, the second one, which I really think is sort of follows logically, is uh, where do you lack the peace of Christ? Okay, where is your heart unsettled? Or where is your heart bereft? Do you know what I mean? Where are those areas that are just unaddressed? Can I just exhort you? Uh, that's a great place to lean in. That is a fantastic place to ask God, Lord, inhabit my heart with your peace in these places. There are areas where peace does not live in my heart, and I so desperately need Jesus to come in there and make a home there. Okay, There's some places where that hasn't taken root. So the second piece is where do you lack the peace of Christ? Where is your heart unsettled? How can you lean into that in prayer? So pray with me. This is a simple closing prayer, and we'll pray this. So come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, bring your reign and your peace. 
and ready us to receive you this week. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All God's people said together, Amen. Amen.